Good morning. My name is Rob Heron. I'm one of the associate pastors here at Redeemer. If you're visiting, welcome. We're a month into a series on the book of James. And James practically shows it what it means to respond to God's work, his saving work. That God's intention for us is that we display the reality of Jesus' death and resurrection. That we would not only hear the word, but that we would live it out. What does that mean? How do we do that? James 2 opens up for us a glimpse of how we are to live out the word together in community by the power of the Spirit responding to God's grace. So you would read with me James 2, 1 through 13. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the power of your word. That you call us to a life where responding to your grace transforms not only our individual lives, not only our individual spiritual lives, but our community. We're called to live together in a new way that is freeing because you are a God of grace and mercy. By the power of your spirit, work your word into our hearts and set us free. In your name, amen. I like to think of myself as someone that doesn't flip out when I see a celebrity. I like to think of myself as someone that doesn't judge value of an individual based on fame. I was in college and I walked into a university store and there in the store with me was a famous stand-up comedian who at the time was a big deal. Honestly, the celebrity I didn't find very funny. I still don't, not a fan. But in his presence, I couldn't help but be starstruck. And after ogling him behind racks of clothing, I sidled up to him And I nervously shook his hand and I said, Sir, I just want you to know I'm a huge fan of your work. (laughs) 
pretty disinterested. He said, uh, sure, thanks. And I left that store in existential crisis because I realized I just lied to a celebrity's face. Why? Because there's an air in celebrities of value. When I was in his presence, I saw advantage. I saw resources of fame. I saw what he could offer. Popularity. A good story. I couldn't help but sidle up next to him in hopes that I would get some of that. The way we treat celebrities is an extreme, but the extreme reveals how we tend to judge the value of people. Our world tends to make judgments of individual people based on what they have to offer, of the advantage that they give, the resources they have, that's money, social mobility, political power, followers on Twitter. The more they have to offer, the more value we see in them. And as much as our Western culture says we see all people the same, we really don't. We have to look is, where do we place more honor and dignity? College athletes and coaches, the attractive, the successful, the powerful, they receive far more attention, far more dignity. Those on the bottom of the social ladder, the awkward, the sick, the poor, they're seen to have less resources, less advantage, less to offer, and so less value. Rather than something to give, they're just a drain on us. And so we seek to make them invisible, push them away. On some level, how can we expect anything different from the world? It makes sense to move toward those that have something to offer you. What's tragic is that the way we operate in the church is often the same. That we highlight those who are talented, gifted, the beautiful, the young, the promising. And those with less to offer, we push to the side. We sideline. Because they're just a drain on your time, on your energy. James 2 tells us this is not the way it's meant to be. We're called to live together in a radically different way because we are called into a community of mercy. So I want you to see this morning, we are called into a community of mercy. What do I mean by mercy? I think a helpful definition is that mercy is a judgment of and posture toward others that is based on God's just judgment of us in Christ. It's a mouthful. Mercy is a judgment of and posture toward others that is based on God's just judgment of us in Christ. Or to put it really simply, it's seeing and treating others the way Jesus sees and treats them. That's mercy. We're going to look at what it means to live in a community of mercy by looking at three things from James 2, 1 through 13. The enemy of mercy, the freedom of mercy, and the king of mercy. So the enemy, the freedom, and the king. First, the enemy of mercy. James makes it very clear what this enemy is in verse 1. It's partiality. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Partiality literally means respect of persons. It's making value judgments of people based on what value you see in them, what value they have to offer. 
And James says that is completely antithetical. It's opposite to the faith that you hold in Jesus. And he illustrates the problem here in verse 2. This isn't just a hypothetical scenario. This is likely a situation the believers he's speaking to found themselves in. You look in verse 2. He says that a poor man and a rich man walk into a church gathering. The rich man walks in and he's wearing gold and fine clothing. All the signs of advantage of resources. He has much to offer. The poor man is wearing shabby, filthy clothing. All the signs of drain, less to offer. James tells what the response, he imagines the response in verse 3. That to the rich man, the church says, sit here in a good seat. Take this seat of honor. But to the poor man, they say, stand far away. Or sit here, down at my feet, in a place of subjugation. What's the problem with this? James says in verse 4 is that we discriminate, we make distinctions, and become judges with evil thoughts. That we make distinctions of value and set ourselves up in a position to judge human value that only God occupies. But more than that, we become bad judges. We become foolish judges. That we don't see the way God's kingdom works. You can read in verse 5. We don't see that God chose those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. Those who are part of God's kingdom are part of his kingdom not because they are materially poor, but because they're spiritually poor. We all depend on God's mercy to us. But there is a particular favor that God's kingdom shows to those that the world forgets. But this is meant to be a delight for the church to show particular honor and dignity to the forgotten, to the invisible, to the lowly. But instead of doing that, what's happening? You can look in verse 6. That they are showing honor and dignity to those that oppress them. James' audience is mostly poor. But here they are showing honor and dignity and looking for their value from people that are dragging them into court. What they seek to gain from these rich, they they only lose what little they have. These are people, James writes in verse 7, that are blaspheming, reviling the name of Jesus. The one in whom you hold your faith. The point being, partiality distorts the way we see everyone and everything. There was a social experiment performed in New York City in 2014 by a campaign called Make Them Visible. And the campaign did this experiment where they had people dress up, wear a disguise that made them appear as if they were homeless, living on the street. And then they had family members of these volunteers pass by them while their own family members on the street disguised as homeless were sitting there to see if a husband a son, a cousin, would recognize their own family member when they were under this disguise. In each case, none of the family members recognized the disguised volunteers. One husband even looked at his own wife's face and then sped up and walked off. And the point of this experiment, the director told the Huffington Post, it was to show how we as a culture tend to view the homeless, is that we don't look at them. We don't even look twice. This is in much the way, this is what partiality does to us. It makes us either not see 
those who we don't see value in, that we see as having less to offer us, or we just push them away, and we see them as less worthy of our time. And of course, we do make distinctions among us. Maybe that question is arising. We do make distinctions, distinctions of role, that we believe that certain men are called to be elders and deacons, to guide us in our mission to show mercy to the world, but never distinctions of value, to never be put in a place where we decide who is worthy of our time and who isn't. But so often that's exactly what we do, that we move toward those that are comfortable for us, toward those that have something to gain, something to give us socially. And in a church like Redeemer, where we value community, this can subtly creep in, where we begin to only show dignity or to show a primary dignity to those that meet our relational needs. Of course, you're free to have close friends in the church, but God's word calls us to ask this question, who do you favor? And who do you not? Who do you move toward on Sunday mornings and who do you avoid? Who do you include on your A-list to invite into your home and who do you Never think of. This is partiality. When we make these distinctions of value, when we only show honor and dignity, we show a primary honor and dignity to those who are just like us, who are valuable in the world's eyes. Whether it's their money, their power, their popularity, whatever it is, when that's what moves us toward people. This is partiality, and it distorts the way we see people. We don't, be, we don't see them the way that Jesus sees them. We don't see the honor and dignity in the lowly. Because of that, we miss what's going on in God's kingdom. It prevents us from seeing God's kingdom and living in it. So this is the enemy of the community of mercy. We're called to make judgments and to posture ourselves toward others solely on the basis of God's judgment. This is the enemy. But what is, what's the freedom of mercy that we're given? What's the freedom of mercy? James tells us we're called, rather than partiality, to show love under the law of liberty, or the royal law, he says in verse 8. He says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself you are doing well. This is not the law as a means to justify ourselves, to show ourselves not guilty before God, but this is the law fulfilled by Jesus so that we in relationship with him are free to love one another as we love ourselves. We're free to show mercy. In verse nine, he says that when we show partiality, we become lawbreakers. We violate the law. We're committing sin and then he goes on to say that whoever commits one sin is guilty of the whole law. He says that if you say that I have not committed murder, but you do commit adultery, you are liable to the entire law. And his point there is, is on one level, that showing partiality is, is as weighty under God's law as murder and adultery. The violations of the law are all weighty. We tend to make the big sins Bigger than the call to show mercy. And James is saying, no, it, this is a gospel issue. But he's even making a more important point in verse 12. When he says, so speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. 
his point there seems to be that when we show partiality, we are living out of step with the gospel of freedom, the freedom of the gospel. That we are free to live under the royal law, not because we fulfilled the law, but because Jesus fulfilled it. Because he was righteous, because he was obedient, because he was perfect. Because he took the condemnation that the law justly said was due to us. Because of that, we are free. How? By God's mercy. We are only free in in God's presence by his mercy. We are saved only by his mercy, his infinite, unending mercy. And when we judge the value of individuals, the way the world judges it, James is saying we are essentially saying to God, I should be judged on the basis of value I bring before you. Or I could be judged on the basis of the value I bring before you. And this is a dangerous place to be. Because he says in verse 13, judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. That when we show partiality, we step out of the atmosphere of mercy that Jesus has brought us into. And we step into the atmosphere of judgment. We are living out of step with the gospel of mercy. But James' point is not to beat you up. He's inviting you to freedom. The point is that the life of mercy is the life of freedom. When I was living in St. Louis, I attended a church plant with many young future ministry leaders. A lot of young people in it. And my goal at the beginning of attending this church was that every week when church ended, I would work the room. And I would make connections. I would sidle up next to people that not only were enjoyable and cool, but they were worth my time. It was worth my time to invest in my future to know these PCA future heroes, as pathetic as that is. There was one wrench in the plan for me, Miss Vivian. 95 years old, her eyes were failing her, but she had the ability to remember more names than four millennials combined. And every week after the service, she would maneuver the perimeter of the church and go around to the many 20-somethings that she considered her spiritual children. I was numbered in that group. And she would come up to me and she would clasp my hands. She would ask me how I was doing, especially about my dating life. And she would tell me about her story. At first, I was frustrated by long conversations with Miss Vivian. They tended to go quite a while. And I would think, I'm, I'm missing out. People are my age are going to lunch. These are people I need to know. But over time, something somewhat odd happened. I began to look forward to these conversations with her. I began to delight in these conversations with her. I think for one, because I didn't have to prove myself to her. I didn't have to earn her respect. She wasn't impressed by a 25-year-old seminarian. She just wanted to know me. But as God worked through her, showing me how Jesus sees me, I began to see her through the lens the way Jesus sees her. I began to see a woman with great wisdom and mature humor. I began to see a woman that, in some ways, I needed. Because she showed me mercy. And through that mercy, I began to see her through the lens of mercy. I delighted in someone that the world 
would not guarantee I would ever have a relationship with in the first place. This is the freedom of mercy. There was great freedom in that relationship. And for us as believers, the life of mercy is the life of freedom. In the community of mercy, you no longer have to prove yourself. You no longer have to impress the people in this room. There's no need to go around looking for advantage or resources from one another because all we ever need is given to us by God's mercy. You don't have to prove yourself anymore, but you also aren't enslaved to this unending cycle of manipulating people, looking at them as ways to boost yourself or to give you what you think you need. That's not real freedom. The community of mercy sets us free to delight in people in ways that we never expected and delight in people we never expected. To find that we actually need one another, not only in the people that we get along with, but we need people that are older than us, younger than us, that look different from us, who have more and less money from us, the people that don't seem to have anything to offer us. We're free to see them the way Jesus sees them. The way he sees us. That's real freedom. And you show your freedom by showing mercy. To the extent that you really grasp the gospel of freedom, you will show mercy to one another. To people that are very different from you. So look at the places where you avoid. Look at the places where you exclude certain kinds of people. Where you move toward Or you move away in a way that shows partiality. And there is a place where you need to re-embrace, re-appropriate God's mercy for you. God's mercy to you. You don't have to prove yourself. There's no advantage left for you to gain. You're simply free to live in a community that's the way it's meant to be. That's the freedom of mercy. But finally, how do we live in this community? By looking to the king of mercy. Who is the king of mercy? It's important to recognize here that James mentions Jesus by name. It's one of only two times in his letter that he mentions his own brother, Jesus, by name. And Jesus is at the foundation of everything that he writes. The work of Jesus is presupposed in everything he says. But naming him here is important. Why is it that in this passage he emphasizes the work of Jesus, the presence of Jesus among his people? Jesus in verse 1 is called the Lord of glory. It's a kingly term. He is our king. Jesus is the king of glory. Why emphasize that here? James' point may be or seems to be That Jesus' glory, the weightiness of his kingship, the weightiness of his beauty is shown by his mercy. That Jesus' glory is his mercy. Foremost, his mercy shown to undeserving people who had no advantage to give him and no resources to give him, nothing to offer in the way of merit. He shows them mercy. That is the glory of our king. That is the infinite glory. It's his infinite mercy. And in that sense, when James tells us to show mercy, this is, he's saying this is the way you live in God's kingdom. This is the way you live under the reign of Jesus. You show mercy to one another. 
This is how you delight in your king. This is how you move and know your king, is that you show mercy to one another. Then in verse 8, when he calls this love for one another, the royal law, that this is what delights the heart of the king. In verse 13, mercy triumphs over judgment. That Jesus delights to triumph over condemnation and to bestow all of his value upon us by his mercy. But this also, mercy triumphs over judgment. And that mercy is also our mercy. Does that mean that our mercy merits God's salvation? No. Does this mean that our works of mercy are what save us? No. What it means is that when we stand before God's throne of judgment, he will delight as our merciful king to see the works of mercy that he has produced in us and through us. He will delight to see that. To know the king is to know his mercy. It's to know that when we come before him, everything that we think, according to the world, is so valuable, all our education, all our money, all our success, all of that is a filthy rag before God's throne of judgment. And yet he took the seat of shame so that you would be given the seat of honor in God's court. This is what transformed us, is looking to the king's mercy. There's a story relayed about a duke in England, the Duke of Wellington, in the 19th century. And after a great battle, the Battle of Waterloo, he was decorated, honored as a hero, and he went to church. And there he came to kneel at communion, and suddenly alongside him came a poor man, a man wearing shabby clothing, a church official, You can imagine a church deacon came up to the poor man and tapped him on the shoulder and essentially said, you need to move further away from the war hero. You need to move away from the duke. And immediately, as this poor man rose from his seat, the duke grabbed him and he said, do not move. We are equal here. What this duke apparently understood is that he had received this same mercy as this poor man, that he was just as dependent on the king's mercy. And so there could be no partiality before the throne of God. And for us, we will be merciful to the degree that we know the king's mercy. We will be merciful to the degree that we have embraced and absorbed the king's mercy. What this means is that by the power of the Spirit, We are called this morning to look at those things that are worldly accomplishments, the things that make you so valuable, and say, this is nothing. This is nothing. This is nothing before God. Nothing to earn his favor. But then to see his unending, infinite mercy given to you. To see that he gave himself and took that seat of shame because he loves you. Because he delights to show you mercy. Because he wants to bestow honor and dignity to you. And he has done that. And as we see that mercy weighing on our hearts, that will transform us. That will grip us and set us free. It's as we look to the king that we will show mercy. But we glorify the king by offering his mercy. You want to ask, why should we show mercy to people that seem to not deserve it? that seem to have very little to offer us. 
to delight the heart of the king because it glorifies him. That the king delights when you include on your invitations to your house parties people that don't usually make the A-list. That the king delights and is glorified when you call people that are lonely and are never called. When you visit those who are isolated, he's delighted. That is his heart. High school students, the king is delighted when you think less of yourself when you decide who to sit by. And you choose to sit by someone that is younger than you or seems to have very little to offer you. The king is delighted in that. And he wants to delight us as we live in this community of mercy together. This is what frees us. But we will only do this as we look to him. I think we can begin to think of what it would look like to become creative and intentional by the way we show honor to the poor, to the lowly. And we immediately get tired. We think, I'm so busy. I need my close friendships. What's going to set us free to begin to live this way when so often mercy drains us? Andrew Wilson is a Christian author and pastor, and he has a son named Zeke who has regressive autism. And he writes in his book, What We Never Expected. This is a book about what it is like to raise a child with special needs. And he writes about how so often in his life he has sought to show mercy to his son, to see the honor and dignity in his own son on his own strength. That often as he's worked with his son through, through fits in public, when he's had to carry his son to the toilet, he says, I'm exhausted. And I begin to feel bitter about this. I don't have any joy in doing this. And he writes this, when I wake up in the morning, putting my son on the toilet, making him cereal, stumbling around in the dark and saying, shh, an awful lot. I need to get happy in God as soon as possible. Put differently, I need to fight for my own joy. We will not be merciful because we are merciful in and of ourselves, but only as we look to Jesus, who is not only unendingly merciful, but who never tires of showing you mercy. You can never drain his mercy for you. Even all of us who have failed to show mercy, it is his delight to show you mercy as you turn to him and to seek his power to transform you and set you free. He's never drained. He always will show you mercy. It's unending. It's as we see that unending delight that Jesus has to show you mercy, that we will become the community of mercy. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you delight to show us mercy. And it's because you love us that you invite us into a community of mercy. Where we look through the lens not of worldly standards of value, accomplishments, money, beauty. But we look through the lens of what you have given us in Christ. All of his advantage every resource that belongs to him, all that he has to offer is ours by your mercy. Now, Lord, through the Lord's Supper, direct our hearts to seek your mercy, 
to be changed so that we would become truly instruments of this mercy in your world. In your name, amen.